Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Goldman Ruiz, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Hi, welcome back to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, and today I am joined by Chief Brian Fennessy with the Orange County Fire Authority. Brian, how are you? And thanks for coming on the show. I'm doing great. Thanks for the invitation, Preston. No problem. Brian's joining us from Orange County, California. A little bit of background here. Chief Fennessy Brian, we'll call him now, joined the U.S. Forest Service in 1978. And between that and the Bureau of Land Management, worked as a hotshot crew member, hotshot, hella shot, hell attack captain, and ultimately crew superintendent fighting big wildland fires out west. In 1990, he left wildland fire, and there's a caveat there and joined the San Diego Fire Rescue Department in San Diego. And that ultimately became the chief of the department in 2015. And in 2018, became the fire chief of Orange County Fire Authority. And the caveat is, while he left professional wildland fire, Southwest United States isn't immune from it. In fact, is part of what we're going to talk about. So it's not as though he got to take a break from that. That's still going on. It's just managed differently. Just to give you a sense of Orange County Fire Authority, it's a little bit different than other teams that we've talked to, fire teams like FDNY, for example. The Orange County Fire Authority is the agency that provides fire protection and emergency medical services for areas of Orange County, California, as well as 25 cities within the county that contract with Orange County Fire Authority, overseeing 78 stations and nearly 2 million residents in some of the most risk-prone geography in the U.S. What do I mean by that? Take a look at a map. Take a look at Orange County, just outside L.A. To the south of you, you've got Mexico. To the west of you, you've got the Pacific. To the east of you, you've got wildland fire. And to the north of you, you've got L.A. And so basically, you're surrounded by every kind of a thing and then throw in earthquakes and gang violence. And all of a sudden, you know, you're dealing with every problem every major fire department has in the world at a much reduced capacity. And you have to balance both what we call structural fires, that is like the fire department down your road near your house, and wildland fires who behave differently and need to be dealt with differently. In 2023, Brian was tapped as the International Fire Chief of the Year for Leadership and Innovation from the International Association of Fire Chiefs in a special ceremony celebrating the organization's 150th anniversary. It's one of the reasons we're talking together today. Brian and I have known each other probably 15 or 20 years now. We first met at the Wharton School when he was helping develop some of the leadership programs in the Forest Service. And in that time that he's been at Orange County, he partnered with California lawmakers to create a statewide pilot program expanding fire-integrated real-time intelligence systems that uses technology to survey fires and other disasters and deliver real-time updates to crews on the ground. Helped broker an agreement with Southern California Edison's to fund a fleet of helitankers and intelligence helicopters capable of fighting fires at night. This is a key point. This both use of helicopters and the use of intelligence and data and the ability to do this at night. It's it's hugely innovative, seems pretty straightforward. It's not. The QRF, Quick Reaction Force, is now used in Orange, Los Angeles, Ventura counties and prevents 95% of blazes from spreading beyond 10 acres. If we were to quantify that financially in that densely populated region of the country, we're talking about a significant amount of money. And on his watch, the agency has launched an annual girls empowerment camp to encourage young women to consider careers in fire service. So with all of that, it brings us to our current conversation with all of these achievements. Why are we talking to Brian now? And it has to do with a 60 Minutes episode on the TV show 60 Minutes and CBS that had come out to talk about the innovation of using helicopters at night. So first, let's just, Brian, you can say hello and correct any mistakes that I made and just tell the audience a little bit about what is the deal with with helicopters? Why are we using them? How long we've we been using them? And what are the innovations that you sort of introduced around the country? 
Well, thanks, Preston. Again, appreciate being on the team cast. I've been a, a fan of these for, well, since you've been doing them. I listen to every one and uh, I'm just fascinated by some of the guests that you've you've invited and that have spoken on the uh, on the team cast. I'm humbled that, to be invited. So, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, I got my start back in 1978 uh, with the U.S. Forest Service there in the Angeles National Forest and, and grew up in a town just outside of Pasadena, uh, Altadena, California, and right there in the foothills. And so, you know, that front country, you know, the uh, Los Angeles basin is no stranger to wildfire. And growing up, we had many wildfires, some Santa Ana wind driven, some not. I mean, within literally, you know, quarter mile of, of where I lived, it was always fascinated by that. And so exposed to helicopters from from way back, the Los Angeles County Fire Department have been operating firefighting helicopters since, oh gosh, I want to say maybe even the 60s, you know, the old Bell 47s and, and some of that, they were they and the Angeles National Forest were very innovative in using, at the time, Korean War vintage aircraft and dropping water and, and those sorts of things with helicopters. And, you know, as time progressed, by the time I got into the um, Wildland Fire Service, they were using many of the same aircraft that were being used in Vietnam. You know, being the late 70s, you know, we had UH-1s and, and Bell 212s and those sorts of things. And we're putting crews on board those aircraft, you know, eight to 10 of us and delivering us to fires on initial attacks. So you got to go to a, a lot of fires when they were really, you know, at a, a, at a much smaller stage, hopefully, and dropping water in support of those crews. And so, you know, over time, we've seen larger aircraft helicopters being used. Local government, LA County, San Diego City, and others back in 2000, 2002, 2003 started their, their night programs up. And since then, you know, there are several counties in Southern California that operate under night vision goggles. And Cal Fire has also, you know, joined the ranks. They are training hard and have some aircraft, some S-70 Firehawks, the, the Blackhawk version, now entering night firefighting. And so we've just seen this evolution, Preston, and, and I really believe, and maybe I'll have a chance to, you know, to, to, to mention again in the future, but I think it is. You know, one of the things that the fire service can do right now that isn't new tech, we're not waiting on something. We have off the shelf capability that needs to be employed outside of Southern California, California and throughout the West. With all the pilots that are coming out of war theater that have spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours on goggles, we've got the, the people that, that know how to fly these aircraft and we can't just stop flying because it got dark yeah but for a while they did right for a while didn't california put a moratorium on night flying they did back in the uh in the mid-70s there was an accident on a fire on the angeles national forest where uh angeles national forest helicopter that was dropping water and an la county helicopter were both cleared at night to land at the same spot one landed on top of the other there were fatalities and significant injuries, and that put a stop uh, on L.A. County for uh, several years. The Forest Service continued to fly at night on a limited basis, but you got to remember, too, that they were using a generation of night vision goggles that weren't very good. Back then, we thought they were, ooh, ah, uh, wow, look at these, but very much affected by lighting, depth perception far less advanced than the generation of night vision goggles being used by the military and the fire service today. The Forest Service ended their program in the early 80s, and, and that was it until about the year 2000 when the L.A. County Fire Department started operating at night post the 2003 fires in uh, San Diego. You know, the operation that I was developing down there got into uh, night operations, and so San Diego has been operating well, since 2004, so almost 20 years. Along the way, Orange County, Ventura County, Santa Barbara, most of the Southern California counties that operate aircraft have evolved into not just firefighting at night, but rescues at night, hoist rescues, you, you name it. Whatever you can do during the day with a helicopter, we're doing it at night now. And the reason this matters, just for folks that don't know, is the fire behavior changes at night. Is that accurate? It does. I mean, you know, absent, you know, these 
Santa Ana winds that really are, are unique to the area and, and seasonal and, and really a small percentage of the days, you're exactly right, Preston. You know, temperatures are de- uh, generally lower. Humidity comes up. Wind tends to lessen. And because there are so few aircraft operating at night, your airspace coordination is much simpler. The radio communications are less chaotic. And so there's a number of reasons why you know, working and dropping water or retardant at night makes sense. And as I mentioned in the preamble, the, the ability to get up at night, get these small spot fires out before they develop into big fires during the night ends up getting way ahead of the problem before it turns into something that's this multi-day big event. Isn't that the key? I, I mean, nothing has changed over decades of wildfire fighting. It's like keep them small so they don't become big. What we're finding is they're becoming large, fast-moving fires faster than we've ever seen. They're blowing up our, our spread models or things that we grew grew up with. And so to the degree we can throw everything we have at a fire early before it gets away from us and, and where we don't have enough resources to contain it, that, that's the whole idea. So you, you're seeing us throw helicopters, air tankers, you know, the fixed wing air tankers, bulldozers. I mean, just on a report of a fire, I mean, we are sending a mass amount of resources. We're not waiting for the fire to be confirmed. We've got mountaintop cameras that are now giving us, you know, we can see the smoke and know that there's actually a fire. The smoke is telling us what the fire is doing by the color and and volume of the of smoke. So we're using a lot of resources around us, but that's the key. Preston, you hit the nail on the head is, is man, get them when they're small. Because once they become so large, we can't muster enough people or resources quickly enough to keep them from getting even larger. So when we interviewed Rowdy Muir in, in the 80s, when the big fires first started happening in Florida, we first started to see this wildland urban interface for the first time that wildland fires were impacting major urban centers. And that was the first time that people started really thinking about it. And the strategy at the time, one of the many strategies was this concept of mutual aid. So if one part of an area was getting hit, then other areas around would send aid in. Recently, a couple of years ago, we had the Paradise Fire. And and a couple of factors about the Paradise Fire, for those of you who don't know, in Northern California was the town of Paradise was in the line of a fire that was moving at about 45 miles an hour. And the fire, the entire town was leveled four hours after fire ignition. And so if you think about this pressure of trying to evacuate a town in that kind of limited time, first of all, very few towns have had have the capabilities to do that. Second thing is, Paradise was not actually in a historic burn area. It had become, because of, of climate change, in a burn area. And then lastly, what was going on was when that Paradise fire kicked off, there was also another fire happening in your region at the same time. So there became a moment where people were reaching out for mutual aid. You can correct my math on this. And there wasn't mutual aid to give because there was multiple fires happening. Man, you you hit the nail on the head. I, and we're talking a little bit about risk. So I'll, I'll share a little bit. You're exactly right. You know, the campfire out of Butte County, man, it, it moved very quickly into the town where there was one possibly two, I mean, the same road, there, there was very limited means of egress. And uh, we saw catastrophic loss of life and property. About the same time, the Woolsey fire in LA County, you know, that same afternoon or, or the afternoon that the campfire had uh, had started, began its march under Santa Ana wind-driven weather towards the coast. For those of us that have spent, you know, a lot of time fighting fire here in Southern California, it's not uncommon for fire to travel many miles and and it's the big blue ocean that where where it ends up stopping. Since then, there was a a pretty comprehensive after action report, not a review, but a report done after the Woolsey. And one of the areas that they focused on is, is the mutual aid system. And while California mutual aid was largely born here, the incident command system was born here. Uh, It's been many years, it was presidential directive now that ICS is is used throughout, but it was all here and and through Firescope. Well, 
there's probably no other region in the country, maybe even the world, that is so well-resourced as Southern California. I mean, you mentioned it in your opening. You've got Los Angeles City, Los Angeles County, us, San Diego to the south, Ventura County. We have got, in, in lots of cities within our counties, and we have got a very robust mutual aid system, even locally. One of the after-action report items was that you know, the mutual aid system, I don't know if it said failed necessarily, but they weren't able to get enough resources right away when there were opportunities perhaps to protect more homes and lives in, in Malibu and the communities between where the fire started in Malibu. Well, when I looked at that and understanding how the mutual aid system works, I'm the chair of the Fire Scope Board Director, so we're me and, and all of the fire service leadership here in California. That is that is one of our charges is management of the system. Is that when they asked for a hundred engines, and I got a call one in the morning when that fire was going on, and I'd already had six strike teams, which is about thirty engines up, and a variety of other resources at the fire, and we were we were drawn down. And I'll never forget the chief deputy who was running the fire saying, listen, Brian, can you send anything else? We, this fire is about to hit the Agoura Hills. We're going to lose. It's like, oh, man. I said, look, I can send you one more. And then shift change in the morning, I'll, I'll send you a couple more. But I am beyond tapped where, you know, I don't know that I can protect my own community that's right. suffering the same winds. Well, you know, we did. But what the report identified was that there were hundreds of outstanding resource requests. What the system does is it doesn't want to necessarily deplete you from everything. So it'll ask for 10 engines from more distant counties here. That Well, the, the, the reality is in Southern California, especially LA, and some of Ventura County, let's say, and South, when we need 200 engines, we don't need them within the next 24 hours. We need them now. Because yeah. that fire is going to be burning structures within minutes, if not hours. It's done. But the system is not set up for speed. So after that, and this is where the risk part comes in, I got with the L.A. City Chief at the time, Ralph Terrazas, Daryl Osby, who's the L.A. County Chief, and Mark Lorenzen in return, said, look, you know, had I known what I know now, I would have dumped, you know, I've got nearly 80 stations. I'd have dumped 40 stations to you right now without on my own dime, you know, when you're losing structures, LA City's got 100 and, I don't know, eight stations. LA County's got 180. Ventura's got, I don't know, 35, 40. But between just us, you know, we've got a massive resources. And two-thirds of the state's population lives from Ventura County South. There is no reason that if you hadn't given me a call and told me you're losing homes, I couldn't so let's work something out. And so we came up with what we call the expedited resource response plan. We made this up. Yeah. You got a call and made this up and said, look, man, you call me and you tell me you need half my stuff. And it can't be because structures are threatened, but you're actively losing structures are going to, I'll send you right out the door. I don't even need a resource request into the system. Give me a street, give me a park. They're on the way. Yeah. And likewise. And so we agreed to do this together a two or three page document and i'll tell you what cal fire and the forest service those that, that manage the system lost their shit yeah because this is not how the system is well the system is built to the system we're using it's a federal program it's called iroc it's built to track resources it does yeah. that well it tracks to reimburse agencies you know should there be federal reimbursements or other it does that well it is not built for speed yeah. And so we said, to hell with it. This is what we're doing. And since then, we've used it extensively on fires, large fires I've had in Orange County, fires they've had, and it just drives the others nuts. But so here's the risk for us. If I send them 40 of my 80 engines, well, 100 some engines, whatever, say I send 50, you know, I could get questioned by my governing bodies. Hey, wait a minute. What about the communities here? Well, the hook is, as I'm sharing them with you, I can also pull them back, as can they, should a fire start here. So we're managing our own mutual aid system. So there is risk, right? But at the same time, how do you sit back and see, you know, structures, lives lost? We had the ability during the Woolsey fire to say, if all of us had contributed, we could have sent more. But the system is not designed that way. So we said no more. 
So we're all taking a bit of a risk that way, both politically and perhaps even you know with our own job, should something go go wrong and it become whether it's perception or reality, our jobs could be out there. But you know what? It's it is for the greater good. And so if I got fired because of uh, you know supporting a neighbor that was losing structures and, and life, so be it. And so. We've got really great leadership in the other three, uh, you know, with LA City, LA County, Ventura County. And to this day, we, we've we got this mutual aid uh, among ourselves in play. I remember years ago when I was talking to you about this and reading about the fires and talking to you about the big fires and talking to people in, in big wildland fire sort of organizations. And in my mind, being clueless, living on the east of the Mississippi, where wildland fire is not a huge part, it happens, but it's not a day-to-day occurrence like it is out west. I imagine that there was this amazing mission control somewhere like NASA, where every resource was managed and everything else. And you told me, no, you pick up a phone and call your buddy like on your phone, like it's 1952. Is that still the way it works? Well, that's what this, this what this expedited resource response plan, pretty fancy name for pick up the phone and call you, call a friend. Yeah. But you know, these are the four largest agencies in, in Southern California. And so if I need something now, if I need something, I will place an order into the system, right? And you're, you're right. It's a way it works is each county is an operational area under the yeah. state. So I would have to call the region. My dispatchers would call the region, ask for 50 engines, whatever it is. Yeah. Well, then they would try to, they would try to fill it themselves. But if not, then they would go to South Operations in Riverside, who would have a, a greater reach. And if they didn't have, then they would go to the national, you know, to Nick, you know, the the, the NIFSI up in Boise. And so these things, all these processes all take time and they have to be entered in the system. So it is not fast. It works in other parts of the country where maybe, you know, you're in, in more remote areas and those sorts of things. But here in Southern California, we need help. We need it now. And so we finally, you know, after the Woolsey fire, what came out in that report, it was like, man, how do we look each other? How do we look our citizens in the face when we know we have resources we can send? but the system is unable to move them expeditiously. So this kind of brings us to the core of why I wanted to talk to you. So we've talked about on on this team cast, this idea that systems are always wrestling with predictability versus agility. You're always trading against one. If you want agility, you're going to trade against predictability. It's going to be a little more messy, but you'll get it faster and you'll get it, get it more agile. If you want more predictability, you're going to get it, but you won't be able to move as fast. And what's happening now is there are systems now where we have predictable systems, we call high reliability organizations who are colliding with more special operations, highly agile organizations because of the nature of the problem set, right? So if, if, like you said, there are parts of the country where the problem set demands a very predictable, stable, process-driven system, and there are other parts of the country that require high-touch, high-agile, highly responsive, reactive system. So this brings us to a situation where you've got, now just to go back to what we've talked about so far, Orange County has invested in these helicopters. You've got Chinooks, you've got Bells, you've got these these amazing night flying capabilities that allow you to put out fires at night when they're small, very fast. And there's a big fire in California. And you say to the U.S. Forest Service and to Cal Fire, California Fire, say, hey, look, we've got these resources. Should we send them? And they say, sure. It just so happens at that time, 60 Minutes is out interviewing you. They're out talking about the introduction of the wildland fire problem that everyone's thinking about, the introduction of helicopters, and they happen to go out just to see how they're used. This is all in 60 minutes. I'm not exposing anything that isn't known, but maybe you could take us through sort of a little bit of this and this idea of these two systems, what we'll call a stable predictive system and an agile system, and when they collide, things that can happen. Yeah, it, I mean, boy, you, you really uh, put that in great context there. It is a between the two systems, a bit of a conflict, let's say, right? So, you know, we actually made it, uh, we're requested twice. The weather here in Southern California was damp, un- unseasonably damp and, and wet. And meanwhile, you've got fires going on in, in Northern California in 2020. And the Caldor fire at the time, that we first got requested, it just burnt the town uh, the night before of uh, Grizzly Flats, about 
about destroyed the entire town up north. And and so me and the other two fire chiefs, one from LA County, one from Ventura County, that 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 are the host agencies for these large three thousand gallon day night you know Chinooks and the command and control platform. We contacted the Forest Service down at South Operations to look. We have these. It's it's hard to sit here and see what's going on. We felt that morally we need to offer them up. If conditions change down here, we'll bring them back because they are funded by a large utility. I mean, the tune of many millions of dollars. And the utility obviously is trying to be a a great partner down here and provide resources to keep fire small. The Forest Service, in fact, the um, He's now retired, but uh, Randy Skelton, I'll say his yep. name, he was responsible. And you may know Randy. He's, he's attended some of our mission critical team stuff. He told me after the fact that after he talked to us, he said, man, how soon can you get there? And it was like early afternoon. He said, we're leaving now if you let us. He goes, leave. And so we launched. And that's a whole quick reaction for us. We you know it's a takeoff from the military, obviously, right? And the whole idea is surge. Right. Get in there, you know, with mass, speed and force. That's kind of the whole premise behind it. So we ended up up north and they landed up in northern California, not far from where Grizzly Flats was. And nobody was there. Nobody expected us, even though it's a six hour flight. They had to get fuel in between and and, and get up there. And so here you are with these resources and nobody knows how to use them. It was night. And so we stood down and then the next morning we said, we're here. And all of a sudden, the politics started to come into play, I think. Even though all of the aircraft were qualified or carded, certified by CAL FIRE and the Forest Service, and everybody on these aircraft also maintained certification. There's, it's, it's a big process, right? Yeah. With safety in mind. I think personalities got involved. Quite frankly, there was some, some petty jealousies going on. There, there were a number of things going on. We weren't being used. End of the day, and and uh, just so happened that on the way up there, a fire occurred in Southern California that was in the utilities uh, service area. Where had we not been up north, we would have been very effective on. And so we took, but you know, they'd lost Old Town. This fire was much higher priority. Yep. And uh, we weren't being used, and and some of our people were being challenged as to their qualification. It, just a mess and and at one point i let the agencies know with cal fire and the forest service that look if you're not going to use this okay we're going to head home and it was i don't know nine ten in the morning i said if you, you need to let me know by noon if we don't hear anything by noon or the answers we're going to pick up and we're heading south meanwhile the community of this small town they're out by the hundreds bringing sandwiches and cook i mean they love it they see all this aircraft at this remote air and we got into a position it was like, wow, how are we going to explain this? Or, or worse, how are the other agencies going to explain these high-tech resources available to fight fire at night? And understand that Northern California had never had nighttime firefighting by aircraft ever. And about five minutes to noon, I got a call that says, hey, we'd like to keep you. We will put you to work. And so we did some limited work. But again, we dropped at night there, both water. We dropped fire retardant at night. And these were the first, you know, night aerial fire suppression missions ever experienced in California. We later found out that by informal policy, let's just say that there was a feeling that night aerial fire suppression was a Southern California thing. It's not a Northern California thing. It's different. Well, guess what? It's not so different, Preston. Yep. And so we got released from that after limited use. We got released and weather was still poor down in Southern California. And the fire now was creeping into Lake Tahoe, which was now a number one national news story every night. And so they requested us back. We went back up. It just so happened to be the week that, you know, 60 Minutes embedded themselves in our operation. And uh, I, I don't know anything about 60 Minutes other than I enjoy the show. But more than anything, it's about three to seven days on location. Everything else, you know, do interviews. Everything else, there's B-roll. They, they, they can piece the, the show all together. The producer uh, turned in a very good friend uh, from New York. Man, she was tough. Uh, and I really liked her. And, and 
she did not have a problem telling anybody of any authority that, hey, don't you know who we are? You know, we're 60 Minutes. We're the number one watched. I heard her throw that out a few times. <laughs> in, in that New York attitude. And, uh, you know, this was supposed to be a feel good. They'd heard about it using these large Chinook helicopters dropping retardant at night and doing these things. It's supposed to be a feel good story. And that's what she told me when they were all done. She goes, look, this was always intended to be a feel good story. You guys are way out in front. She goes, but based on what we observed and experienced, it's taken a bit of a twist. Yeah. I'm like, oh boy. And so they don't show you, they don't give you any previews until it airs. Right. So it was a little bit of pins and needles, but there was some behavior by some government agency personnel that let's just say was not conducive to putting everything we had on that fire. Everything was a challenge. And unfortunately it did embarrass, you know, a couple of the agencies that was never our intent. Yeah. But I think the good news is that led to some change as well. Yep. My personal concern was I have a lot of friends, both retired and active with both Cal Fire and the Forest Service. And I expected a lot of angry calls, text messages, whatever, and was shocked that 99% of the feedback I got was all positive, even by active employees. It said, look, it's about time. You know, we've all known this was going on for years and years, and and now it's out, it's exposed, and the governor's asking what's going on. The people in Washington on the Forest Service side are, aren't happy. And internally, I think my board of directors is like, man, are you concerned at all? It's like, not really. I'm concerned about the relationships I have out there. I says, but I didn't. We we didn't do this. And anytime we were challenged, it was. Okay, look, but did what was anything he said or anything done not true? And people had to acknowledge that no, that that was true. And yeah. so yeah, that was a tough one. When when you're standing there under the lights getting questioned by Bill Whitaker on, on 60 minutes, obviously I'm not going to lie, but I'm also trying to provide them a perspective, perhaps. I mean, they're new to this whole thing, right? Yeah. But what I liked about it is because they were so new, they really saw it for what it was. And a lot of it was just, you know, petty, immature bureaucracy. It was a number of things that have existed for many, many years that was now exposed. So let me jump in here, right? Because as I'm going around the country to a lot of teams in medicine, special operations, tactical law enforcement, this theme keeps coming up over and over again. You've got a leader staring at a problem that's been going on for a while. He's dealing with some folks that are saying, well, this is new technology and that's not the way we do business. And you're looking at the wrong problem. That's not a problem here. And by the way, who are you? You're a stranger here. You're not with us. And as a leader, you know, in this particular circumstances, not only did you grow up in the forest service, so not only do you have to take your family to task a little bit and say, hey, kids, I, I know who you are. What you're doing is wrong. You got to take that moral stance. You are the person that is sending the gear because, A, you're trying to be a good citizen and a good friend. You're looking at a problem set, fires at night, which you know that you you have proven record of doing, but you're bumping up against regionalism. You're bumping up against folks that are stayed in their ways, that think they know what they're doing. Maybe they're overwhelmed. Maybe they weren't prepared and embarrassed, all these other things. And now you've got 60 minutes videotaping the whole thing, right? So normally what is intended as let's get up there, let's do some good work and come home, ends up being, let's get up there. Now we're in molasses of political personality mess and we're being videotaped by 60 Minutes. There's a lot of leaders right now that are looking at some version of this going, man, do I have to bet my career on this, right? I know what right looks like. I know what has to happen. I know that I can take my toys and go home and let the place burn, but that's people's houses. And so do I have to bet my career and my badge on doing this? And I'm saying it this way because I want to remind everyone that Chief Fennessy just got awarded International Fire Chief of the Year. And partly based on these kind of actions, speaking truth to power, but it's not speaking truth to power when you don't have any stake in the fight. This is when you've got legitimate irons in the fire here. This, If this goes badly, it goes badly for everyone. And so I think what I would like to ask is right now for listeners, when when you as a leader are 
or when you're talking to your younger leaders, right? And you're in these situations, what advice would you give people when they're in these bet the career moments? You know, we talk about a lot about, you know, in our mission-driven culture, we talk about, you know, a high trust state and pursuit of truth and continuous improvement, those sorts of things. But I, I often wonder, even myself, a lot of self-reflection, right, is like something irritates me or something seems out. The first thing is, is this, is this, why is this bothering me so much? Is it me? Is it my ego? Is it my pride? Is it because it's wrong? And really trying to get to the gist of what it is that makes it important. And then to your point, man, is this worth my job? Is it worth, and I think, and I don't know, I wasn't always this way. Trust me, you know, as a younger operator, I didn't necessarily think like this. In fact, I never even planned on being the fire chief. That that was not something in my freaking employment plan. Just kind of happened that way. But I think as we get older and wiser, I, I think you end up having to make those choices, right? What is your what is your red line? And really it becomes honesty and, and truth and all those things. So I've been told by others that, well, you're in a position where should, for whatever reason, right or wrong, you get fired or whatever, you know, you've still got a, a retirement to fall back on, you know, for somebody that's maybe younger that hasn't got their 20 years or their, yeah. whatever it is they haven't, do they maybe make decisions based on a little bit of self-preservation, especially their families and mortgages and those sorts of things? I don't know, but I think that it really comes down to the individual and you know, how do you live with yourself? Well, I always like to say you can't unknow what you know. So once you know it, you could try, right? You could try to ignore it or, or, or rationalize whatever it is. But man, when you know something, you're laying there at night, deep that you know. Yeah. You know. And if it's something that is actionable, how do you not? How do you not? And I guess maybe some people can, some people can't. Maybe that's an issue for me, but there's been a few times where I've had to tell not not just others, but my board of directors that listen, should you go in this direction, you may need to find another fire chief because yeah. it's just not something that that I can do for you. I think what's interesting just to go back to where you started is to say that we hear this a lot on this on this team cast, which is this idea of weaponizing your curiosity, right? Just to stay in a place of inquiry. Why is this happening? What, what am I looking at? Why is it bothering me? What's the dissonance here? When I was a wilderness guide, one of the things we'd often get in the 90s and the 2000s was the, we'd have lawyers come in and say, well, you don't want a lawsuit. You don't want to be in court, you know, all these things. And after going through some bad incidents, right, and and being in some interrogations by attorneys, I realized, you know what? Actually, the the attorneys leave, <laughs> the attorneys go away, the courtroom ends, all that stuff ends. What doesn't end is me laying in bed wondering if I could have done something different. That's the thing that people people think it's very transactional. It's not. If you're in a mission driven organization, if you're in service to something. The choices you make have ramifications, and it's more than the legal ones, which which leads us to this question of being in a mission-driven organization. And how do you think about that with your folks? Well, you know, I someone's told me, um, and I'll answer that here in a second, but you're right. You know, I was the number two in San Diego for probably six years, maybe a little better. And, you know, when you're trying to model your decisions over your your leader's decision, trying to, you know, you, you almost have to get inside their their head and their heart. And I worked for a, a really great leader there, but he was very much risk averse, where I'm way out on the other continuum, where I'm like, let's do it. And I think together we, we kind of balanced each other off. And he and others says, well, wait, you know, until you're in this seat, you're going to see it's different. You tell yourself, well, yeah, I, I think, but I, I think I get it. Well, man, they were right. Once it's on you, right, whatever decision, good, bad, there aren't any black and whites. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, but really it comes down to what's in your heart, yeah. right? What is it that you can live with? And it's less about how does this make me look? Now, you're concerned about maybe public exposure you know, to the agency or the organization and, and perceptions, those sorts of things. But in the, the day, you said it. Preston, I mean, you look at yourself in the mirror or you're laying there in bed. You could try to lie to yourself, yeah. but sure. you know, 
Yeah. Deep down, if you really can be honest with yourself, you know, and if you compromised your values, your principles, those any of those things, you know, you've made a mistake. Maybe it's recoverable, maybe not. But it really is a, a lot of self-reflection. So I'm sorry, I don't think I answered your question. Can no, you, I, you I'm, glad, I'm glad you went on that tangent because I think some of the most instrumental, impactful lessons of my life are the choices I made or didn't make that led to the harm of someone else. And worse, the ones that I didn't take, that, that I failed to act when I could have, and I did nothing. So theoretically, I can't be blamed, but I blame myself. I know I could have done something and didn't. And so now I'm that guy at the party where if you're doing something where I think it's self-destructive, I'm just going to tell you, not in a vindictive way. I just want to be clear in my own moral compass that I said what I need to say. And that's something I don't know if that just comes with age or what they call wisdom or whatever, but I know, man, I've looked at a younger operator. I didn't, you know, I wasn't my problem. That's somebody else. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way we we rolled, right? What 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 we're trying to do in, within our mission-driven culture is, is really I've been out there promoting for a lot of years, you know, first with San Diego and here is, you know, we like to call ourselves paramilitary organizations. I hire a lot of veterans, people from the teams and, and Marines and those things. I did in San Diego and I, and I have here. And I've had several of them tell me, well, you know what? You guys and your command and control are much tighter and stricter than even we are in the military. So I yeah. think many times the fire service gets this, hey, we're, you know, this very strict compliance or rules-based organizations. Well, what we're trying to, what I've tried to do in San Diego and, and have been successful there and, and now successful here is we want to be an intent-based organization. Yeah. I mean, I've got plenty of examples. I'm sure you do as well, Preston. I'm sure many operators and organizations that listen to this do as well that, I didn't do it. We didn't do this because the rules said that. And so we didn't do it because of the fear of, man, now I'm going to be held responsible for violating policy, this, that, and the other thing. Well, we're saying that rules are important, but man, when, the, when things are going down and, you know, there's chaotic, uncertain, time compressed, we want our leaders at all levels. When I say leaders, it might be a firefighter that doesn't have necessarily a positional leadership role in the organization. We want them to take action, good or bad. Take action because that moment of time is going to pass very quickly and you may not get it back and people may be hurt or killed as a result. And so we're pushing that out. Now, I always get this from the, the firefighters or others when I'm out meeting with them. Well, that all's well and good, Chief. You know, when the outcome is positive, what if the outcome is negative? You got my back then. And, you know, at one point in San Diego that that came up, it's like, man, that's a really good question. And so we brought attorneys in and said, listen, and gave a number of, of situations and look, if you're acting in behalf of the organization and this intent and things, unfortunately, go, you're still covered. And I've got several stories of, of firefighters and, and company officers, which are the leaders of the small small units, making decisions outside of policy that ended up causing them to get disciplined. And that as a mid-level manager at the time, when some of these were going on, I, just, I protested loudly, saying, wait a minute, you tell us you trust us and you got our backs, yet I'm going to a medical aid but it's going to cause me to pass a fire. The major smoke people are waving at me. Yeah. In San Diego, our policy was, man, whatever 911 call it is, you go to that call. You don't divert for any reason. So here, you know, here's an engine company going down a major thoroughfare. People in the street waving, big smoke, apartment building. And the company officer makes a decision. Make the left. Let's go. They got there and guess what? It was a construction, one of those giant construction uh, trash bins that was yeah. on fire next to the building. His heart just sunk, not because people's lives weren't threatened or anything else, but because he deviated from policy. Yeah. And he got disciplined for that. And I thought that was a travesty. I mean, we are we need to trust our leaders in these yep. small units to make those decisions and and you know what we had another engine come and they dealt with that you know the cedar fire there were i saw this firsthand you know we had 50 engines in one spot and the chief left whoever the chief was says don't do anything till i come back well we're losing 
dozens of homes up on the yeah. hill, less than a mile away. And time is now passing. He's gone. And so there were near mutinies. There were firefighters going, hey, man, that's our. we need to go up there and do something about it. Yeah. And about half of them did. And the other half stayed. And why'd they stay? Because that was an order. Wow. And so the blinders were on. We lost. We probably could have saved many other other structures. So, I mean, this continues to repeat itself. And I don't want to be associated with an organization that is so rules slash compliance based that meant it takes thinking on the on the fly away. So we, we've become a, an intent based organization. So part of this culture that you have, you have a series of organizational values, which I find super fascinating. I'm just going to read them through so people know. Service for the common good, a high trust state, which you talked about earlier, pursuit of truth, adaptability driven by end state, disciplined initiative, and continuous improvement. What jumps out at me besides high trust state, which you talked about, is pursuit of truth. Brian, if there's one thing that gets me in the most amount of trouble in my life is that I go to teams, right, and I show up and they hand me a document and then we go out to observe and I look at the document and I look at what's happening and I'm like, these things don't match. And they're like, sure they do. And I'm like, no, they don't. I'm reading this. I'm watching that. These are not the same. And then they will get super angry. They're like, well, you can't write that down. I'm not writing anything down. All I'm saying is you handed me a document. You are showing me an event. They're not the same. And so it's been interesting in my life that people will talk about pursuit of truth. But when you actually start speaking truth, things get exciting. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, I had a boss. I was a hotshot foreman, right? I worked for a superintendent, so I was responsible for 10 out of the 20. And he used to tell me, he goes, you know, the worst thing about you is when you know you're right. That gets you in more trouble because now you're out there. I said, well, it's, I, I was pretty immature, but we know it. He goes, well, there's other ways to approach yeah. us, but you're right. And I think we find that. But, you know, the, the one, I'll give you another, uh, you know, you talked about individual or disciplined initiative. Yeah. You'll love this. Oh, and it drives, I think, others and crazy. Not so much here, but we as a fire service. Unlike law enforcement, if there's an active shooter or something, man, they come from all counties, yeah. thousand miles an hour, man, and the, the masses. We don't operate like that. Fire departments are you don't move until you're requested. Now, you may be driving down the street in a fire engine or fire truck and you see a smoke, you report it and head that way. But if it's a long ways away, you're reporting it because you might not be on that response. And God forbid you self-dispatch. Right. I haven't heard that enough times, right? Well, we're operating this, you know, command and control. Well, there's more of the uh, what we call IAA or basically intelligence aircraft, these two fixed wing that now the state we've transferred over to the state. And really, that was all about taking what, you know, the military has been doing for many, many years in war theater and bringing it here, you know, on these fires and bringing the folks on the ground, on their phones, whatever, real time perimeter maps, live stream video, those sorts of things. What we found very quickly in the, when the program started, if we wait on the request process, we're never going to get to fires quickly. And the whole idea is to get there quickly, right? And so these aircraft, these King Air, they got multiple sensors. I mean, just, I mean, really, really incredible aircraft. We found that in order to get these fires, we need to operate under disciplined initiatives. So I've got 20 air attacks, and these are air tactical group supervisors spent, in some cases, decades working for the Forest Service and CAL FIRE that are now retired. And they've set up their own businesses. And I, we subcontract with them. I've got 20 of them now to staff these airplanes. And we figured out very quickly that, look, you guys will respond based on whenever you want to. Basically, as you're gathering information via pulse point, TV, word of mouth, anything around you, if you decide you've got information and you want to launch on these fires, you have the ability to launch. No permission needed. Go. Oh, my God. The Forest Service, the CAL FIRE, others lost their minds. What do you mean? They're self-dispatching. No, they're not. I said, these are intelligent individuals that spend decades, manage millions of dollars of operations and contracts. 
they're not flying to just anything. They're gathering information on yep. their own, some of it being provided through, you know, Fusion and UCSD and a number of sources, and they decide. Otherwise, we're not going to get to these fires in a rapid amount of time to provide those operators on the ground the information they need to make better decisions. I got beat up for that for two years, and there's still a lot of people that don't really like it, but we basically said, look, that's the only reason this program is successful. Well, one of the only reasons yeah. is that we've given this disciplined initiative, and it's in the contract now. We had to write out what disciplined initiative is, yeah. embed it in the contract so that these these are former hotshots and, and you know chiefs, I mean, very the, the best of the best that are providing information that they would want if they were on the ground to everybody that has a phone yeah. on that fire line. Oh, yeah. So so we fought the disciplined initiative. And it goes right back to you said, what, what the doctrine has and what we actually do yeah. don't always jive. Yeah. So I, I want to think right now, so in this show in, and in the years I've been doing this, I've become, as you have, very concerned about the longevity of people that choose to be a service to the country. Folks that choose this life and it's a hard life. And and this idea of how do we cultivate people so that they can do the job? And in your world, it's a hard job and still have a full life with full use of their relationships and their body. How do you think about this now as a fire chief, having lived a hard life and probably have a few injuries you're recovering from? Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a little beat up too, like everybody. Yeah. I mean, you talked to Jim Cook, I think, in your last session, and you know, he's a, a great example of how hard you know that the work is on, on the body. And it really, when I left at 32 years old to go to work for San Diego, I, I was kind of an old man yeah. at 32, right? And so. There's a lot of discussion, I think, everywhere, both with the, certainly in the military and law enforcement and fire on this new generation. And the new generation has been the new generation for 10 years now or something, right? And so the old guard is retiring and, and a lot of concern 10, 15 years ago. We're losing all this experience and we're bringing in all these new folks. And, oh, my gosh, it's going to be awful. And we found kind of the contrary. They're, they're much smarter than... I was when I started the fire service. I mean, high school, barely got out of freaking high school, right? And, and, you know, two days later, I'm working on a, on a hotshot crew. But most of the people I worked with, you know, in San Diego, when I first started, were carpenters or framers or roofers, or they, they were really came from blue collar jobs. That's not the case anymore. A lot more military, which is good because they generally have got great life skills leadership has been embedded you know with them especially the special operators that we're hiring and but a lot of them don't have it was told to me the other day at the ifc and you mentioned it earlier that many of the folks we're hiring have been on their phone since they were since they could remember yeah and really haven't been out and had the life experiences so i'm not saying that's the only reason but we are experiencing a an extremely high level of suicide yeah. mental and behavioral health issues fire service wide and it's not necessarily because they're weaker it's just maybe they're not as good as compartmentalizing as some of us were or are we all any of us that have spent time in the industry have things that we you know can't not see anymore yeah some require more than others so so there is a hyper vigilance now in peer support on providing professional care and it's real I, i get every quarter a list of not names, but of a list of like 30 things that people can be seen for. Everything from thoughts of suicide, alcoholism, drug, you name it. I mean, we've got a lot of people seeking help, which I think is the good news. But how many aren't seeking help? You know, suicide now has eclipsed the number of line of duty deaths every year. With firefighter suicide is, is killing more firefighters than line of duty deaths. It's a huge conversation, Preston, and, and a high priority for me. We all, unfortunately, any of us have been around, have gone to a lot of uh, funerals of, of yep. firefighters that took their own lives. We all have personal friends that you know, have harmed themselves or, or taken their lives. And so it's, it's a real deal. Yeah. But the job is the job. And, and on this job, in law enforcement, certainly in the military, you're going to see some pretty heinous things. Yep. 
and it's how you deal with it and and your family and and keeping it all together i think is just appears to be a bigger challenge than it was 20 30 years ago so i'm going to start to wrap us up by and, and there'll be time for you to certainly do any wrap up comments but i want to start thinking about like recommendations for what people can do on monday and so i'm going to put you in a little bit of an uncomfortable spot which is as follows there might be a situation, and I, I can't imagine it for you or I, but a situation in which we are convinced of a particular thing. We are convinced of it. It's always worked that way. Yet there's somebody beneath us, a subordinate of ours, who actually has different information and different perspective and has to come up. And they're passionate. They're not shy. They're passionate. But they know that we care deeply about this subject, and we're probably not going to react well to suggestions for change. Because we're older, because we've seen this a million times, a bunch of things. We're human. What recommendations would you give that subordinate who's coming up to to talk to you about the thing you may not want to talk about, but maybe need to? Man, that's a great question. I was that guy. I'm guessing you were probably that guy yeah. too, right? Yeah. yeah. What I found, you know, which led to ultimately success, is just the ability to be persistent. I can't tell you how many times people told me in my career, that's not going to happen. Put a fork in it, leave it alone. You're upsetting people. You know, you jump the chain of command, whatever it was. But if it was something that that I truly felt strongly, I, I found there were ways to approach it. And I encourage that. And I think you'll hear that probably everybody encourages that to what degree that they really do or not. I don't know. Yeah. But because, you know, I've had a lot of experience in that, both as a, a younger, you know, firefighter all the way through, I encourage that. And, and I tell my staff here often that they need to get out into the fire stations and they need to go talk to people. It's in like the old days where you know, we didn't care if we ever saw the fire chief or any of the executive staff come by the fire station. It was fine. Now they want us to come by and they want to talk to us, which is really bizarre for me. Yeah. But that's the that's the reality. And we get some of our best ideas from the people out in the field. They know what's working and what's not. So when you go into these fire stations and if you try to tell them, oh, this, they'll look at you out of respect and maybe nod, but you know in their head they're thinking these people are out of touch. They're completely out of touch. And I tell me, and I say this openly, which probably causes my staff a little bit of grief, but it's like, if you want to know what's going on in the fire department, go out to the stations and talk to them because well, we may think we know, yeah, we don't. And how many times has somebody brought, you know, some executive staff or somebody in the middle, some program forward that was going to change the world. And then the firefighters, I know I experienced is, you know, that's not really our problem. Right. Our problem is this. And so we spend all this time on issues and problems that we think are a big deal. When you go out there and they'll tell you, and the minute though, the, the first, well, maybe not the first time, but if you have a history of taking these ideas and executing or making a big deal of them, others, you know, feel more empowered or have the courage to speak up. And it makes people nervous because I tell people that, look, the chain, chain of command is important, but we're not the military necessarily. We're, you know, unless it's on the fire ground or somewhere where the chain of command is rigid and needs to be. You should be able to email me. You should be able to go around. Now, uh, as a courtesy, you may want to let your boss know, hey, look, I've got this thing. You know, the chief has always said, just giving you a courtesy, I'm going to send it or whatever. I That makes some people uncomfortable, especially yeah. those in the chain of command. But we encourage that. And since I've been here, we've implemented so many new programs and, and gotten resources that came from the field that weren't our ideas. And that we find that that just generates more people. And now, listen, not every idea is a great one. Right. right? And sometimes you got to tell them, look, man, that's actually not a bad idea, but some of it's timing. Yes. Right. I mean, that, that, that's a great idea, but not. But in two years, all of a sudden you're calling those folks back. Hey, remember we talked about this? Yeah. Man, the time is right. Let's move. Let's execute. Or now we've got budget for it. And, and so there's a number of things and they get educated. And guess what? They're sitting in these seats. Well, you, something you said earlier in the conversation, which is you were talking about somebody else and, and going to have a, a difficult conversation, and you made the comment, well, you sort of need to know their hearts and minds. So when you're walking up to somebody, there's this role of empathy, which is it can't just about be you transmitting what you want. 
If you're trying to get somebody to agree with you, you're going to have to invest a little bit in understanding where they're sitting right now. Yeah. And firefighters, you know, and that's probably everybody would say the same thing. I think we're pretty, we're pretty good at sniffing out the bullshit. And so, you know, as leaders, you better be as authentic as you can. And, and I certainly am. I encourage others to be just because the badge says one thing. Preston, and I know you you don't like the old, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room thing, this and that. But generally, right, I yeah. mean, depending on what it is, I know a lot of things only from experience. But I'm that guy that grew up when everybody else was like, hey, don't do that because this will happen. Well, I had to do it. And then it happened to go, well, I guess they were right. Yeah. If you survive it, it's a great, it's a great school. It's a great learning. But, you know, I'm I'm still the same knuckle dragger I was when I was throwing dirt. I mean, my aspirations in the late 70s, early 80s was, man, I wanted to run that chainsaw on the crew. Yeah. Life would be perfect if I could run that saw. And so things were, you know, kind of yep. small. But so when I go to a station or I'm talking with anybody, it's just like you and me talking. And pretty soon they go, because they're good at sniffing bullshit. And I tell people, if you try to bullshit, you can pull that off. Yeah. For a while, even if, even if you're, if you're really good for a long while, but the minute you slip, man, they're on you. Yeah. I told you, I knew that yeah. he was just saying that he or she. And so I found it good because man, I can just be my, myself and, and I don't ever have to worry about it. And so people tend to open up and know that we are genuine about trying to solicit ideas that the folks in the field, they're at the point of the spear. You know, they're the ones doing the job. We talk about the fire department. We're all supporting operations, engines, trucks, and ambulances. All of us, the fire chief, hazmat, the fire marshal, this and that. We all support to those that are running those 911 calls. That is our business, those 911 calls. Everything else is in support of. So when special ops, you know, the hazmatters want to think that the world revolves around them. And I'm not saying they do yeah, here, sure. but you name the special unit or sure. whatever it is. EOD, whatever it is. You stop them, say, nope, man, it is that operator that's jumping off that fire engine, fire truck. And if we're not doing all we can to support them with budget, tools, training, whatever it is, we're failing them. It's interesting, you know, something you said before, one of the things I've noticed a lot about leaders, especially in big organizations, is some of them find it easier to write a check than ask a hard question. And you can make the mistake of buying these cool new gizmos that think, oh, this will solve a problem. And they end up in a closet not being used as opposed to just going down to the firehouse and having the conversation you're going to be uncomfortable with. Yeah, let them, you know, let's get some of those things and try them. It's kind of this... This risk triage, right? When you're an operator, you're evaluating and triaging risk. Now, kind of my my triage of risk is starts at, well, okay, if we do this, will anybody get killed? No. Will anybody get hurt? No. Will anybody get fired? No. Will anybody, you start working yeah. your way down and eventually you get to this like, well, let's give it a try. Yeah. It, let's try it. Let's get some. And let these guys who, who are identifying this champion it and operate it, and if it works, and then if they can sell it, to everybody else, you know, makes my job easier. But I think those things that are that are driven from the bottom up tend to be more successful um, so, than anything top down. As we start to close this out, I wanted to give you a chance to any sort of last thoughts to a listener who may be in a position of authority that's got to speak truth to power to a group that doesn't want to hear it, but it still feels as though they got to say it. Probably the recommendation I would have, and, and trust me when I say I haven't always been this way, I've had to learn it over time or, or get old enough or be in a position is, you know, you got to listen to your heart, right? And, and you've got to evaluate as you're laying there in bed or wherever you're getting your, your time is, is what's the consequence of not saying something, of not taking action, you know, versus necessarily and assuming somebody else will. And, and it takes courage and it's scary right i'm telling you man i've lost probably like you press i've lost a lot of sleep over some of it and it always worked out better than i thought it was right because then we think about it so much and, and we worry about the outcome but in the end and the 60 minute story is a great one I, I i was more concerned about losing relationships i was less concerned about my agency i mean no but you know local government in general embarrassing and all those other things but in the end you got to have that that tough 
conversation with yourself and and you have to do it if you if you want to look yourself in the mirror man it's hard uh, and, and it's awkward it's like when people say that you know when you've got to have these tough conversations with people you need to discipline or you need to correct on those things that it gets easier i don't know that it gets easier all the time man but you have to do it right right you can't look the other way and status quo right now in our industry is not acceptable we need to be leaning in so i guess my you know any recommendation is self reflection you know it's easy for me to say hey if it's going to cause your job or whatever you know i i can't everybody's got an individual situation right but you got to find a way in that pursuit of truth to find out or to to push forward whatever it is that 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 is on your mind and i think as leaders as fire chiefs um you have to do that even at great peril of your own of your own job and usually it turns out better than you think and the troops really appreciate when their leaders are willing to stand up to the elected officials and the people that appointed them i've been blessed here in san diego where most probably not all of the elected officials you know supported me but i have to remind them on occasion too preston that hey look remember when we you hired me in those last interviews and i told you that there were going to be times i came to you with information you weren't going to want to hear well this is one of those and you all nodded your head you wanted me to be honest and transparent yeah. and tell you like it is this is me doing that now yeah and i see they've got a shutter a lot of them but but it is what it is and it tends to always work out best but the minute you compromise your values your principles i, I think you're done you're done as a leader well, sir, I want to thank you for taking the time. I know you're extremely busy, and I really appreciate you coming on the TeamCast, so thank you. Well, thank you, Preston. Like I say, I'm, I'm extremely humbled that you would even ask, given so many that have been on the TeamCast. So hopefully I didn't embarrass you, man. No, man, this has been brilliant. I could talk to you all day, as always. And we, <laughs> we will talk again. So thank you again, sir. I'll see you soon. Thank you, Preston. Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at Janice at missioncti.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.